Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi nasta'inahu wa nastafirahu wa na'udhu billahi min shururi anfusahum wa sayi'ati ahmalina man yahdi illahu falamundhila lahu wa yudlil falahadiyah lahu. Ashadu an la ilaha illallah Wahdu la sharikallahu wa ashadu anna muhammadan abduhu wa rasuluhu. All praise and thanks are due to Allah. We seek God's help and forgiveness. We seek refuge in God from the evil within ourselves and the consequences of the evil, our own evil deeds. Whoever God guides will never be led astray, and whomever God leads astray will never find guidance. I bear witness that there is no God but God alone, without any partners, and I bear witness that Muhammad is God's servant and God's messenger. You who believe, be mindful of God as is God's due, and make sure you devote yourself to God and to your, to your dying moments. Approaching the topic of women, mosque, and Islamic authority involved a probing inspection of significant eras in Islamic history. An overview of the historical discourse of women in mosques and data that was collected from a 2011 mosque studies on women in American mosques. These sources serve to illuminate some current circumstances. So here in this brief khutbah, I would like to offer a few important points of reflection on the history of women in the mosque, followed by how we can nurture our souls. The formative period of Islam includes two distinct sections, a prophetic period from 610 to 644 CE, and an interactive period from 644 to about the 10th century, 925 CE. Textual and material sources offer very important historical information from this period and they include the Quran, canonized hadiths, and early biographical um, dictionaries, particularly one from Muhammad ibn Sa'd. Prophet Muhammad, blessings and peace be upon him, began teaching Islam in 610 CE at the age of 40. Until his death, he remained the only authority on religious knowledge for the then small Muslim community. Three mosques held extreme importance for the believers. The Meccan sanctuary surrounding the Kaaba, the Prophet Mosque in Medina, and the Jerusalem Al-Aqsa Mosque. The Kaaba was situated in a courtyard with houses surrounding it. And as in pre-Islamic times, no barriers separated the men from the women. To this very day, during the pilgrimage, Muslim pilgrimage to Mecca, there are still no barriers, no gender separation, and no separate entrances. As the Prophet and the early Muslims were forced to migrate to Medina due to persecution, the Muslim community grew, and so did the importance of the mosque. The mosque had many functions. It functioned as a school where people learned the religion, it functioned as a parliament where the community discussed um, laws and affairs of the state. 
It functioned as a courthouse where judgments were passed, and it also functioned as a community center where families met and with their friends and neighbors and held celebrations. In short, it was the hub and center of public life for the Muslim community. The Prophet's Mosque in Medina also functioned as his home with one entrance open to an adjoining courtyard where prayers were conducted. What is also significant is that there were no evidence of walls or other barriers separating men and women. There is also evidence of full female access to both the Meccan sanctuary and also the mosque in Medina. Several Quranic verses tell us that God commanded full access to all believers. Chapter two, verse 114 states, and who does greater wrong than those who prevented access to the places of prostration to God so that God's name not be mentioned in them and endeavored for their devastation? It had not been for those to enter them, but as ones who are fearful. For them is degradation in the present, and for them is a tremendous punishment in the world to come. In many early examples of Islamic life, women were regarded as leaders in establishing the life, the character, and the practices of the Prophet. The Prophet's best friend, Abu Bakr al-Siddiq, may God be pleased with him, assumed leadership of the Muslim community after the death of the Prophet in 634 CE. His leadership is regarded by most historians as more or less a continuation of prophetic practices, um, particularly regarding women's access to mosque. Early Islamic history is full of examples of women as active participants and as fully involved partners in the crucial emergence of Islam. Following the death of the prophet, his wives became sought out for their knowledge of prophetic practices. Most prominently, the prophet's wife, Aisha, may God be pleased with her, who was also the daughter of Abu Bakr, was consulted. Aisha is renowned for a large percentage of hadith transmission. Many early scholars attribute as much as half of our religious knowledge to her. Umar ibn al-Khattab, may God be pleased with him, was the second leader of the Muslim community for 10 years after the death of Abu Bakr. Umar's leadership begins an interactive period marked by rapid growth and a time when most of the primary textual sources, the Quran and Hadith, were compiled, recorded, and codified. Umar's leadership is also marked as a time of initiating the first major changes for women and their accessibility to mosque. From textual sources, we find that during his reign, the structure of the Kaaba the, Me the Meccan sanctuary around the Kaaba also changed. Umar bought the, house, the surrounding houses, tore them down, and surrounded the area with the wall. Yet there was still no barriers and no walls within the sanctuary itself, the courtyard of the Kaaba. Umar figures prominently when it comes to the discourse of women in mosque. He was known to be strict and autocratic, especially in relation to women. For example, uh, and a hadith narrated by Saad ibn Abu Waqqas states, and I'm going to read this. Once Umar asked to see Allah's apostle, in whose company there were some Qurayshi women, who were asking him for more financial support, raising their voices. When Umar asked permission to enter, the women quickly screened themselves. When Allah's apostle admitted Umar, Allah's apostle was smiling. Umar said, 
Oh, Allah's apostle, may Allah, may Allah keep you happy always. Allah's apostle explained, I'm astonished at these women here with me. As soon as they heard your voice, they quickly screened themselves. Umar said, oh, Allah's apostle, you have more right to be feared by them. Then Umar addressed the women saying, oh, enemy of yourselves, do you fear me and not Allah's apostle? They replied, yes, for you are a fearful and fierce man as compared to Allah's apostle. On that, Allah's apostle said to Umar, by God in whose hands is my life, when Satan sees you walking down a path, he takes a path other than yours. It, is, it was said that Umar disliked his wife going to the mosque, but unable to prevent her Islamically due to um, the prophet um, Hadith stating, do not prevent the female servants of God from attending the mosque of God, he instead instituted gender segregation. Umar prevented the prophet's widows from going to the mosque in Mecca by preventing them from performing pilgrimage. However, he reportedly reversed this decision after his death. After Umar's death, Uthman ibn Affan, God, may God be pleased with him, assumed the leadership. He reversed many of Umar's decisions. Ibn Sa'd reports that when Uthman came into power, he once again allowed women to pray together with men, but behind the men. After Uthman, the prophet's son-in-law, Ali, may God be pleased with him, leadership held no changes in access, women's access to mosques. As Islam spread and the leadership of Muslims changed, mosques were constructed in various garrison towns and remained an important part of Muslim public life. Though these mosques very often resembled the prophet's mosque in Medina, there was one distinct difference, separate entrances for men and for women. During the prophetic period, the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, may peace and blessings be upon him, was the sole figure of Islamic authority. After his death, religious authority was increasingly held by scholars in Sunni Islam, while in Shia Islam, they looked to religious authority via imams whom they believed were appointed by God. The rise in Islamic dynastic orders and empires created a class of male elite scholars, rulers, and lawmakers who debated on many issues of the day. Of these issues, women in mosques was an important one. There were three particular trends in which the ongoing debates took place. Each reflected conflicting reports and hadiths. One was an attempt to legitimize gender segregation in mosques by using early Islamic examples or selective prophetic traditions. Another was an attempt to oppose gender segregation on the grounds that it was not the prophetic pr practice. And a third was an attempt to keep women from the mosque altogether. Although Quranic injunctions such as um, verse, chapter two, verse 114, and conflicting reports and hadith prevented the total possibility of prohibition of women from mosques, within 200 years of the prophet's death, many places in the Islamic world had instituted systems of seclusion for women and segregation in mosques. This impacted women's rights in particular, and women's rights in particular to, to participate freely in the public life. As Islamic knowledge institutionalized, women's roles as leaders and scholars changed and declined. By the end of Islam's third century, a definite pattern had emerged, 
and was fixed in place, especially among ruler classes. These changes took place and had a lasting effect on the results of the gendering of ritual spaces in Islam, leading to separate entrances, separate prayer area, and in some mosques, the total absence of women. Why? Because authority equates to legitimacy in the minds of most people. This is the same in other religions, belief systems, and other aspects of life. Religious authority dictates who has the right to interpret religious texts and apply them to the lives of the followers. In early Islamic history, thousands of female religious authority figures appeared in Islamic biographical sources as companions of the prophet, as hadith transmitters, Sufi saints, and as patrons of religious endowments. And if we pay close attention then, we can see that female Islamic leadership is not a new phenomenon. We will see that throughout Islamic history, there are examples of female leadership connected to the mosque and Islamic educational system, but in different ways from their male counterparts. In the interactive period of Islam, most prominent female scholars came from families of established male religious scholars, and they faced many challenges of contentions and imposed limitations. Contemporary female leaders, Islamic leaders, quite often cite these examples to legitimate their positions by offering at historical precedents when challenged. Also, many contemporary female leaders face similar challenge, Islamic or not. Our efforts are often viewed as an innovation and or often limited in leadership and legitimacy. Many times we are expected and we find ourselves expected to conform to the teachings of a prominent male authority and limit our leadership to female-only audiences. Interestingly, this history bears many similarity with the institutionalization of early Christianity. Many scholars of early Christianity proposed that during those formative period, women were important members of the church marked by a distinct involvement in leadership. Some scholars contend that their loss of power in the church is the direct result of concerted efforts of male church leaders. In a very similar manner, many scholars of women in Islam make much the same claim. For example, one scholar, Elizabeth Fiorenza, argues that women were not marginal in early Christianity. And as in the prophetic period of Islam, women in early Christianity were leaders, teachers, and among the first converts and the first prominent scholars. There are several key similarities to the decline of women in leadership roles. There appears to be a common ethos on family, marriage, and citizenship established by male rulers, our senate, the caliphs, priests, religious leaders, etc. And some Christian, Muslim, and Jewish women contend that male elites have misinterpreted religious texts, resulting in a loss of leadership, position, strict gendering, systems, ritual, and body controls. Through all of this, though, God the Most High offers us avenues for recovering and overcoming this situation. The Quran states, verily, for all men and women who have surrendered themselves unto God, and all believe in men and women, and truly, all truly devout men and women, and all men and women who speak the truth, 
and all men and women who are patient in adversity, and all men and women who humble themselves before God, and all men and women who give in charity, and all self-denying men and self-denying women, and all men and women who guard their chastity, and all men and women who remember God constantly, for all of them God has readied forgiveness of sins and a great and mighty reward. I have said what I have said. May God forgive us all. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. All praise and thanks are due to God alone. So many amazing sisters have spoken from this platform before me. Many have discussed aspect of self-care. If I may, I'd like to offer my contribution. Your soul is an intimate part of who you are. So much so that in classical Quranic commentaries, the word nafs is translated as soul and self interchangeably. In referring to the soul, I am referring to the essence of who you are, yourself. To care for and to encourage the growth and development of something is to nurture it. In this way, it's easy to understand that nurturing your soul is nurturing yourself. Not until a few years ago, unless I was around people that I knew and grew up with in the Nation of Islam, I would not admit that I was ever associated with it. For those who may not be familiar with the Nation of Islam, it is an African-American Islamic religious movement founded in the 1930s by Farad Muhammad, later developed by Elijah Muhammad, and I will not be um, um, also include Clara Muhammad, must include her also. So it was developed by Elijah Muhammad and his wife, Clara Muhammad. Several leaders got their start in the Nation of Islam. El-Hajj, Malik El-Shabazz, Malcolm X, um, Muhammad Ali, Minister Farrakhan, and Imam Warfadeen Muhammad. The Nation of Islam, a strong call for black unity and its push for black people to know their worth and to do for self, could be considered an early example of a Black Lives Matter movement. And if we can see it in that way, then uh, perhaps we can get some benefit from that. Perhaps we could come to see that the work that we do towards correcting the power imbalances in society, while we work into th on that, it is also important to heal the thinking of the oppressed and the marginalized. We must know that there is worth there, and they must know their worth and learn from the past in order to break the cycle. For me, while I took in the mental and physical training of the Nation of Islam, I hungered to know more about the world and what made people think and behave as they did. So at a young age, about 14, I started college. My favorite place was the library and reading books on philosophy and world religions. In the Nation of Islam, the life of Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, was not in the forefront. So as a child, when I heard the name Muhammad, I assumed it was referring to Elijah Muhammad. As I read books on Islam, though, in the library, it became apparent that none of them were referring to the type of Islam that I was taught all my life. I became fixated on the life stories of the Prophet Muhammad and his companions. So much so that in 1974, I decided I wanted to be that kind of Muslim. 
and I stopped going to the Nation of Islam services. I didn't know Islam in any particular name of Sunni or Shia or whatever. I just wanted to be like those people, like Prophet Muhammad and his companion. When Elijah Muhammad died in 1975, his son, Imam Warfdi Muhammad, led the majority member of the Nation of Islam to Sunni Islam in what is still considered the largest group conversion on record. By this time, I was well on my way in the study of Islam, but it was good then to be able to reconnect to the people that I knew all my life. Growing up in the Nation of Islam in the 60s and 70s was like an, exper in an, an experiment in how to correct a social imbalance. There were definitely many pros and many cons. On the pro side, we grew up in a social vacuum away from the talk of society about who we were as black people and what society thought our place was in it. Instead, we lived in a world where our young minds were filled with empowering messages, history, examples, and potentials. One of the life lessons we learned from that experience was how to create our own world with whatever materials were present. Yet, in all other areas of my life, I struggled to feel love and support. I was painfully shy as a child, and I grew into a woman who had very dichotomous ways of thinking and behaving. So much so that not until a few years ago, I would not even admit also that for most of my life, I was profoundly unhappy, disconnected, and suffered long bouts of deep sadness. I went through life dutifully, responsibly, but not joyfully, not fulfilled. One world told me that I can accomplish whatever I will, and in the other, I wasn't good enough to expect credit for my own accomplishment. One world told me that I was superior, and other worlds told me that I was inferior. I grew up with the ability to create and establish school systems and businesses with ease and finesse, but an inner voice kept saying to me, you don't deserve this. Who do you think you are? This is too good for you. Let others take credit for that or give it to someone else. Many times in my life, I would build up things so high and all that I accomplished, I would lose it and go deeper into, a, into my sadness. I honestly don't remember managing a sincere smile or smiling much until about 2007. I believe that if I did what I was told and followed the rules and regulations, I would one day get my chance and then I would be loved and then I would be happy. I was completely disillusioned when I realized that there was never an end to someone else's rules and regulations over my life. There is a saying, you will accept as much happiness, love, and peace you think you deserve anymore, and you must consider either to sabotage and push it away, or change the way you think about yourself. And how was I going to do that if I believed that I wasn't worthy of it? This is what I discovered. I was sabotaging my own life because I did not believe that I deserved better. God says in the first 10 verses of chapter 91, Ashams, and by the sun and his brightness 
and by the moon as it follows it, the sun, and by the day as it shows up the sun's brightness, and the night as it conceals it, and by the sky and its construction, and by the earth and its wide expanse, by the soul and the proportion and order given to it, and its enlightenment as to its wrong and its right. Truly, whoever purifies it succeeds, and whomever corrupts it fail. The first part of this surah, this chapter, God instills an oath on the creation through a beautiful description of the sun, the moon, the night, the day, the sky, and the heavens and the earth. Then God extends this same oath to include our souls and further tells us that our souls were given proportion, order, and enlightenment. Then God says, truly, if you want success, cultivate, grow, nurture yourself, and those that don't, they frustrate, stunt, and corrupt themselves. God is speaking to every human being and swears an oath to us all that just as the source of these magnificent creation is God's alone, God assures us of this. The evil we do to our souls stem from wrong choices and human decisions. Purification of our soul is the process which occurs when we take full accountability for nurturing our own souls. God reminds us that it was not man nor woman who constructed the sky and redirects our attention back to God as the source who did indeed construct the sky, the heavens, the earth, the sun, and the moon. God is telling us that our souls, our very souls, came with a built-in sense of order, proportion, and worth, given to us by the same source. What is order and proportion? We are given an innate sense, a seed of what it means to act with virtues of justice, of mercy, and forgiveness. We are given innate consciousness of the source, God. When we cultivate that seed, each one of us was born with, we purify our souls. Know that we will corrupt our souls and stunt them when we don't. What are those things which distract us from nurturing our souls? Fear. I'm going to say that again. Fear. Doubt. False thinking. Injustices to ourselves and to others. And feeling of unworthiness will stunt your soul. How can we get to a place of nurturing our soul? We have to start by knowing that we are worthy of it. We deserve it. And that when God addresses humanity in the Quran, God is speaking to each and every one of us. Consciousness raising must happen first because no problem can be addressed until there is awareness that one exists. This has been the single most recurring aspect which I have witnessed in my time here with the Women's Mosque of America. That's why this place is so important. Very quickly, I came to realize that the safe space of which the Women's Mosque of America refers to is not a matter of physical safety. It is rather a safe space for consciousness raising, to begin to cultivate your soul with the loving encouragement, support, and nourishment from fellow sisters. If we do our part, God has promised us certain success. What the imbalances in society always seem to indicate is worth. 
There are some who see themselves as not worthy in a share of God's abundance. And there are some who think that they are better than others, and so they, they alone deserve God's abundance, or at least more than others. So they believe that they, their lives are more valuable. Muslims are to live in a middle course, not as superiors and not as inferiors. All of creation have the same intrinsic value. Transcending social issues historically has, considered, has, has consisted of navigating disparities in this tug of war of power imbalances. The nurturing of your souls, of yourself, is so critical to our existence, to our quality of life, how we see ourselves collectively and individually. If we desire to heal ourselves, our communities, our nations, and ourselves, and our environment, we must begin to heal our thinking by healing our thoughts and the thoughts we think about ourselves and others. The power to heal these imbalances in our lives lies within us. Women have every right to take ownership of their lives, of our lives, and we are worthy because God says so. The Quran states, and when God says be, then it is so. You'll come to see that everything in your life, all the pros, all the cons, all the experiences were meant to be used for your ultimate success. God willing, I'd like to leave you with an assignment until next time. I pray that you will reflect and act on what I have to offer in the best possible manner. Some say that knowledge is power, and I would like to add that knowledge is potential power. Success begins with the state of mind that comes to those who become success conscious. Resolve to throw off the influences of any unfortunate environment and build the life that you want. Find gratitude in every aspect of your existence, past and present. Treat yourself as if you are deeply loved. Self-love will make these change, positive changes easier. Remember that God has sworn an oath on creation to you, my sisters, for the success of your soul. How should you now, knowing this, live your life? The Sufi master Rumi said, live life as if it was rigged in your favor. We can stop now doing things out of obligation and struggle and instead act from a place of inspiration and joy. It's never too late, you're never too old or too ill or too whatever, you can fill in the blank. God says in, the, in chapter 14, verse seven of the Quran, and mention when your Lord calls to you, calls to be to proclaim, if you give thanks, I will increase your blessings. And if you are ungrateful, my punishment will be sincere, severe. O Allah, enlighten what is dark in us, strengthen what is weak in us, mend what is broken in us, heal what is sick, straighten what is crooked, and revive whatever peace and love has died among us. Our Lord, forgive us and our brethren who came before us into the faith, and leave not in our hearts rancor or sense of injury against those who have believed. Our Lord, thou art indeed full of kindness, most merciful. Our Lord, grant us good in this world and good in the hereafter, and save us from the punishment of the fire. God command justice, doing good, and generosity towards relatives, and God forbids what is shameful, blameworthy, and oppressive. God teaches you so that you may take heed. Wa asalat. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Ashadu Allah, ilaha illallah, Ashadu Anna Muhammad Rasulullah, 
Hayla Saleh, Hayla Filet, God come to Saleh, God come to Saleh, Allah who egg bought Allah who egg bought, Lay Ilaha illa.